Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! I, I think the word war criminal should not be thrown around in the domestic debate. It's a shameful it's a reflection on the people who use it. Henry Kissinger has died at the age of 100. To many in the Washington establishment, Kissinger is hailed as one of the nation's most influential and famous diplomats. But around the world, from Chile to East Timor, Bangladesh to Cambodia and Laos, Henry Kissinger is remembered as a war criminal whose actions led to massacres, coups, and the deaths of millions. We'll speak with the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Greg Grandin, author of Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman. So Kissinger's trajectory from Cambodia, from being the the architect of this secret campaign to bomb a country the United States wasn't at war with, to the state we are in now, governed by a national security state, is, is, is what I think is most instructive about Kissinger's life and most important about him, other than describing him as a war criminal, which, which he is. But first, as the truce in Gaza is extended another day, we speak with Avril Benoit, executive director of Doctors Without Borders, and human rights lawyer Raji Sarani, the director of the Palestinian Center for Human Rights. He's now left Gaza. He'll join us from Cairo. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's agreed to extend its truce with Hamas for a seventh day to facilitate the exchange of captives. The extension was announced just minutes before it was set to expire Thursday morning, prolonging a reprieve for Gaza's 2.3 million residents after 47 days of relentless attacks by Israel spawned a massive humanitarian crisis. On Wednesday, Hamas released 16 hostages, 10 Israelis, four Thai nationals and two Russian-Israeli citizens. In exchange, Israel released another 30 Palestinian women and children prisoners, many of them jailed indefinitely without charge under Israel's administrative detention policy. On Wednesday, Hamas said its youngest Israeli hostage, 10-month-old Kafir Bibas, was killed in an Israeli bombing alongside his mother and four-year-old brother. If those deaths are confirmed, the hostages joined some 15,000 people killed by Israel's assault on Gaza since the October 7th Hamas attacks. Two-thirds of the dead are women and children. Also on Wednesday, the Palestinian health ministry in Gaza said it had discovered the decomposing remains of five premature Palestinian babies left to die after Israeli forces ordered medical staff to evacuate and blocked access to the intensive care unit at the Al Nasser Pediatric Hospital in North Gaza. 
Shocking footage filmed by the Dubai-based outlet Al-Mashad shows the babies still attached to ventilation and intravenous tubes as they lay lifeless in their hospital beds. Rights groups are calling for an international investigation. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli gunfire killed a 21-year-old Palestinian man and wounded four others as they gathered outside Ofer prison, awaiting the release of Palestinian prisoners. Meanwhile, two Palestinian children, who were shot dead by Israeli forces during a raid on the Janine refugee camp Wednesday, have been identified. 15-year-old Basil Suleiman Abu Awafa died in a hospital after he was shot in the chest. And 8-year-old Adam Al-Ghul was shot in the head as he ran from Israeli forces in a killing that was captured on video. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society said Israeli soldiers blocked medics from approaching the camp to tend to the wounded. Israeli police say three Israelis were killed and several others wounded Thursday morning when a pair of Palestinian gunmen opened fire at a bus stop on the outskirts of Jerusalem. The attackers were shot and killed by two off-duty soldiers and an armed civilian. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has pledged to resume Israel's assault on the Gaza Strip once Israel's ceasefire agreement with Hamas expires. After completing this stage of the return of our hostages, will Israel go back to fighting? My answer is an unequivocal yes. There is no situation in which we do not go back to fighting until the end. This is my policy. The entire cabinet is behind it. Netanyahu's comments came after Israel's far-right national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, threatened to dissolve the coalition government led by Netanyahu if Israel halts its bombardment of Gaza. Here in New York, hundreds of peaceful protesters led by a group of interfaith organizers gathered in midtown Manhattan to demand an end to Israel's assault on Gaza and its occupation of Palestinian lands on the occasion of the annual Rockefeller Center Christmas tree lighting ceremony. Hordes of police officers were deployed to the event as activists ultimately gathered in front of the nearby News Corp building to rally. This is Nardine Kiswani of the group Within Our Lifetime. We stand here on the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people in solidarity with Jerusalem 13 official churches and the entire municipality. <laughs> Nerdine Kiswani outside Fox. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., progressive Congress members Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush and Jamal Bowman joined a group of activists, politicians and celebrities who were on day three of their hunger strike to demand a permanent ceasefire. This is Congress member Tlaib speaking at their nightly White House vigil. When this pause in the violence expires, all I keep thinking about is asking my colleagues, how many more lives? How many lower lives will be enough? How many more children need to be killed? How many more families have to be traumatized and torn apart? There is nothing humanitarian, my friends, about giving innocent civilians a few days of rest before they are bombed again. Earlier in the day, House members voted nearly unanimously to pass a resolution equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, a framing which has driven the backlash against anyone who's critical of the Israeli government. Only Congressmember Thomas Massey voted against the measure. Congressmember Tlaib voted present. 
Employees and job seekers continue to report retaliatory action for speaking out against the conflict. Georgetown Law School graduate Janan Chahadi says she had a job offer with the prominent law firm Foley and Lardner rescinded over her support for Palestinian rights on social media after she was interrogated by the law firm's partners. They framed my advocacy for Palestine as supporting terrorism. And I was singled out as one of the only visibly Arab Muslim women associates in the law firm nationwide. Today, I'm speaking in defiance of the surge of attacks we have been seeing against Palestinians and their allies, from the murder of six-year-old Wadiya al-Fayyumi to the shooting of three Palestinian students in Vermont, to severe attacks on employees and associates like myself who speak up for Palestine. However, the more of us that speak up, the more power we have. So today, I'm not only speaking up, but I'm fighting back and pursuing legal action. Palestine Legal says it's received more than 700 requests for support from advocates for Palestinian rights since October 7th. That's triple the number the group reported for the entire year last year. Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, the architect of a highly militarized U.S. foreign policy under Presidents Nixon and Ford, has died at the age of 100. In the late 60s and 70s, Kissinger oversaw a massive expansion of the war in Vietnam and the secret bombings of Laos and Cambodia, where as many as 150,000 civilians were killed. In Latin America, Kissinger supported dictatorship that used torture and murder as tools of political repression, from Bolivia to Uruguay to Argentina. In Chile, Kissinger helped topple the democratically elected government of Salvador Allende, ushering 17 years of dictatorship under General Augusto Pinochet. In 1975, Kissinger and President Ford met with the Indonesian dictator General Suharto, giving him the go-ahead to invade East Timor, which led to the killing of a third of the Timorese population. The Pulitzer Prize-winning author and historian Greg Grandin once estimated Kissinger's actions may have led to the deaths of up to four million people. After headlines, Professor Grandin will join us to discuss Henry Kissinger's life and legacy. The U.S. Department of Justice has charged an Indian national with plotting to assassinate a prominent Sikh separatist leader living in New York City after federal agents allegedly thwarted a murder-for-hire plot. Federal prosecutors in Manhattan say 52-year-old Nikhil Gupta has been arrested in the Czech Republic pending extradition to the United States after an unnamed Indian government employee recruited him last May to carry out the assassination. Gupta allegedly offered a $100,000 bounty to a hitman who turned out to be an undercover DEA agent. The plot allegedly targeted Gurpatwant Singh Panum a U.S. citizen, lawyer, and spokesperson for the organization Six for Justice, which advocates for an independent state for Six in northern India. Gupta's arrest comes just two months after Canada's government said agents of India's government, led by Prime Minister Narendra Modi, were directly involved in the assassination of the prominent Canadian Sikh separatist leader Hardeep Singh Nijar in June. And ex-CEO Elon Musk lashed out during a New York Times event Wednesday when asked about recent advertiser boycotts over Musk's reposting of anti-Semitic content. If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f*** yourself. But go f*** yourself. Is that clear? F yourself, Musk said repeatedly.
Over 100 brands have halted their ads on X, formerly known as Twitter, which stands to lose $75 million in ad sales by the end of the year. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Israel has agreed to extend its truce with Hamas for a seventh day to facilitate the exchange of captives. The extension was announced just minutes before it was set to expire on Thursday morning, prolonging a reprieve for Gaza's 2.3 million residents after 47 days of relentless attacks by Israel spawned a massive humanitarian crisis. On Wednesday, Hamas released 16 hostages. In exchange, Israel released another 30 Palestinian women and child prisoners. Meanwhile, in the occupied West Bank, two Palestinian children were shot dead by Israeli forces during a raid on the Jenin refugee camp on Wednesday. 15-year-old Basil Suleiman Abu al-Wafa died in a hospital after he was shot in the chest. An 8-year-old Adam al-Ghul was shot in the head as he ran from Israeli forces in a killing captured on video. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society said Israeli soldiers blocked medics from reaching the camp to treat the wounded. In Khan Yunus, in the south of Gaza, Doctors Without Borders surgeon Dr. Hafiz Abu Khusa described how his hospital is overwhelmed. That we see there are the majority of patients, they are uh, female and children. But what hurt me a lot when I see a child, an, an innocent child, injured, and uh, he needs a major surgery, he lost his limb, and he's the last child, he's the only remnant of his family. And when he woke up from anesthesia, he asked to see his family. So this is really a heartbreaking situation. The countries that we face here is the lack of supplies, the lack of instrument. For the hospital, if, if, he, if no, in normal days he, he ha, there's um, 300 patients, now it's more than 1,000 patients. The patient, they are homeless because many of them are refugees within Gaza, and the other people, they have uh, their houses were destroyed. They don't have the access to potable water. They, they, there's a lack of food, a lack of extremity. And some of them just get out from their houses with, with their, the clothes that they are, they are wearing. We know that we are in danger, in danger anytime, even, but we will keep doing the same. For more, we're joined by Avril Benoit, executive director of Doctors Without Borders. Uh, welcome back to Democracy Now! <clears throat> if you can talk about what is happening right now, in Gaza. I mean, as we are broadcasting, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken is meeting with Mahmoud Abbas, um, uh, and he just met with Netanyahu. There is a ceasefire. It, not clear it was going to be extended even one more day, minutes before the end of that ceasefire. Uh, it was announced it would continue. What have you learned about the devastation? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, from the medical humanitarian perspective, uh, what we have seen from the beginning after the appalling attack on October 7th has been a collective punishment of the people in Gaza. And that's why you see such a disproportionate number of civilians killed. The devastation on the hospitals is, is near complete. Uh, there are a few hospitals in the north that are really not much more than shelters right now uh, with still medical personnel trying to stay with patients, but they have no more equipment, they have no electricity, have, they have no water, uh, they're holed up and uh, it's a very high risk evacuation route. Uh, we know from our own experience of our 
team that was uh, stuck there with their families after having made the decision for the medical doctors to stay with the with some of the patients in the hospitals that um, they came, uh, they were subjected to crossfire. A couple of the members of the evacuation uh, group, uh, the family members were, were killed in that. Our vehicles were destroyed, the ones that we were intending to use to be able to evacuate these staff and families after they retreated from what seemed to be uh, imminent risk of death uh, that proved to be fatal in the end. And so what we're seeing is this uh, surge of patients in the south. As you just heard, uh, hospitals from the beginning have been completely overwhelmed, but now uh, they've got patients who really require much more complex medical care. They require really referral, um, ideally a medical evacuation in a safe way to uh, a third country, for example, where they can receive the, the level of care that will save their lives and prevent uh, further damage. Um, just to mention another thing, because of the lack of antibiotics, medicine, dressing, wound dressing equipment, um, we have a very high risk of high numbers of people dying of infections. Uh, and that is something that, that should never happen uh, under international humanitarian law, the norms of war. Um, people should have access to medical care in a conflict like this. Um, and that is just not being guaranteed in, in terms of the way uh, this war is being conducted. Can I ask you if you've heard about this report of El Nasser Pediatric Hospital in northern Gaza and the uh, premature babies, uh, five of them discovered the remains of the babies. Um, uh, the reports were that they were left to die after Israeli forces blocked access to the intensive care unit. I don't have the details on that. I'm sorry. Uh, what we do know is that it was a harrowing decision for the medical staff uh, when ordered to evacuate and knowing that sometimes you're only given a couple of hours, which is completely unacceptable. Um, even in the context of this of this pause, this uh, truce, uh, which we certainly hope will continue and become an actual ceasefire, it's very complicated to to transfer a patient uh, that is in a vulnerable state um, in a in a machine that no longer has any uh, electricity. As you probably know, the the lack of fuel has meant it's it's near impossible to run ambulances. Um, and because of the violence, all these checkpoints where it seems that people are are waiting for hours and hours. You can imagine you've got people who are transferred from an intensive care unit uh, stuffed into an ambulance because it's one of the only ones running. And then uh, at a checkpoint, they're stopped for, for up to seven hours. And then there's violence and they feel they have to retreat. It's a very harrowing, high risk uh, kind of thing to, to organize. And that's one of the reasons that, that we're calling for this killing to stop, for there to be a proper ceasefire, and furthermore, for there to be medical evacuations so that people can receive the care they need in a safe way, with, of course, the right to return if they so wish, and then also for there to be unconditional humanitarian aid that is allowed to enter, because we know people are in places where the aid cannot reach, and they cannot reach the hospitals. Uh, they, they don't feel it's safe, and so they are at risk of, of dying uh, and uh, suffering uh, lifelong consequences if they don't receive the medical care right away. And Avril, could you speak about the, uh, during this pause, how much uh, uh, medical equipment, uh, supplies, medicine, as you were speaking about earlier, the acute shortage, which many people have mentioned, how much medication uh, is coming in, medication and equipment is coming in during this pause into Gaza? 
The specifics are, are unclear, to be perfectly honest. We see that uh, every day there are a certain number of trucks. They move at a snail's pace. Uh, what we would really like to see, of course, is for that to be faster and of greater volume. Before this conflict, before October 7th, there were seven, 500 trucks that would cross daily into Gaza, and that was during uh, blockade. So not enough. Uh, the, the hospitals were already at a deficit of, of the equipment that they needed, of the replenishing supplies, uh, the, the, all the stocks uh, were always um, threadbare. And so then compounded with the fact that we have an estimated 30 to 35,000 wounded people, not to mention those that are now coming in with fevers, gastrointestinal uh, situations, uh, acute watery diarrhea, maybe it's cholera, we don't know because we don't have the testing facilities and labs available to, to check. Uh, what, we're, what we're seeing with this truce is that it, there is no way to be able to support the hospitals that continue to stand. Of course, many of them have been damaged uh, in, in the fighting. Um, they have been attacked systematically. The World Health Organization has been tracking this. And for us, this is a, such a, 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 an obvious violation of international humanitarian law to attack hospitals, to attack medical staff, to kill them while they're at the bedside of patients and our own colleagues have been killed. Um, and and to just go after these facilities as if there's some excuse that that is legitimate when it's not, and there's no evidence that's been offered to really prove that that they should be targets. So really, nothing nothing to substantiate that at all. They are protected spaces, and so the truce has allowed perhaps some stocks to go in for us to facilitate. Um, to do some movements, to check on some, some hospitals and clinics to see what their stocks are like. But you, what you really needed was to pre-position everything, to have it already in place at the starting blocks, in a warehouse, ready to be um, distributed to the places that need it most, that still have medical staff. And that wasn't done because of the total siege over the last many weeks. And Avril, uh, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm sure you've heard that the World Health Organization earlier this week uh, warned that more people in Gaza could die from disease than have already died from the bombing. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, well, certainly uh, I mentioned infections earlier. When you have children coming in uh, who have more than 50% of their bodies burned from explosions, uh, they are in the best case scenario in the fully equipped hospital with all the means to control the infection, uh, really uh, it's a life or death situation. So now we have so many of these children um, that, that we cannot treat properly. We don't even have the proper gauze in the stocks to be able to do it. The other thing that the World Health Organization was pointing out, which is entirely plausible, is this whole question of, de of dehydration. So young children, uh, infants, are coming in severely dehydrated. And where is the water? Since the siege began, this is one of the things that this collective punishment has homed in on to say, we're not going to give you access to water or food or medicines all the things that are needed just to stay alive. So that's a, a huge problem right now. And then you just think of the people with chronic illnesses, and this is always a concern for us. Somebody who's on heart medication or they have diabetes, they have any number of chronic illnesses, think of all the cancer patients. Where are they supposed to go to replenish? The, the hospital system that is 
barely functioning at all in the South, for example, uh, their focus is on the severely wounded that are coming in, um, trying to keep people alive, patch them up, do the amputations really quickly, uh, not in the proper way even to allow for prosthetic devices after. They're just trying to, to, to do the most um, triage very urgently. And, and the ones who, who need safe place to give birth, the ones who need their heart medication, uh, the children who are severely dehydrated and there's nowhere really to look after them in a hospital like that, these are the ones that are likely to be uh, the other casualties of this war, not only the ones who were killed by the direct violence that is seemingly uh, affecting civilians so much more um, than anyone else. Ariel Benoit, if you can talk about Netanyahu's threat to, uh, in resuming the bombardment, you've got um, Blinken, who reportedly is urging more surgical strikes, but they're talking about bombarding the South. This is where they forced, what is it, a million Gazans, Palestinians, to go from the North. So talk about what this would mean if the, this temporary ceasefire ends. It's a it's a horror show for us. Just think about it. A, a third of the injured people already were injured in the South, which was the place that everyone was told to go. That was the place you were supposed to leave the North, go to the South, uh, and and then they got uh, killed there. So for us, this is this is the worst because what we have is on the one side the talk of we would like humanitarian law to be respected. We would like civilians. Uh, to be considered, uh, limit the collateral damage of civilians. And yet, what we have seen time and again is there are no consequences evident for not doing that. And so we have, uh, with the looming end of this truce, and it seems uh, not enough political will to really have a ceasefire, uh, what we would regard as a kind of talking one thing, but no consequences. So we can tell um, the Israeli forces, the Netanyahu government, uh, please try to limit the killing of, of civilians, uh, start doing that. Uh, but we're not really seeing any consequences if they don't. And we do know that the United States is providing billions in aid, its military aid. And so, you know, it, it seems that that aid could well be used with no consequences to violate international norms, the Geneva Conventions, international humanitarian law. And for us, that's just unacceptable. And finally, Avril Benoit, MSF International President Christos Christou posted this update on Tuesday that while he was visiting the MSF team at the Khalil Suleiman Hospital in Jenin, the Israeli army conducted an incursion on the refugee camp. Yes, and and one of the most difficult things about We're gonna that play is a that... Clip. We're going to play a clip okay. of Christou right now. Sounds good. It's been already two and a half hours that we are trapped in our hospital here in Jenin while the Israeli forces are operating in another incursion in Jenin camp. There is no way for any of the injured patients uh, to reach the hospital and there's no way for us to reach these people. There's nothing worse for a doctor to know that there are people there needing our care and they cannot get it. So, Avril Benoit, if you could comment on that and also the fact that two children were killed in Janine just today. Yes, well, as Dr. Christou, our international president, uh, said, if people cannot access uh, a facility in the West Bank, uh, already you can see uh, the, the grave concern that we have. Um, under humanitarian law, anyone should be able to reach 
a hospital. And to have a hospital surrounded, blocked, so that no one can actually bring their injured children, uh, bring their wounded uh, to that hospital, for us, is a complete outrage. It's been happening systematically in Gaza. And for, for us to now see it elsewhere uh, is something that we, as an international community, should never accept um, and that is one of the reasons that we are speaking so loudly and in a united voice with the humanitarian aid agencies for a ceasefire, a proper ceasefire to stop the killing, stop the siege and allow aid to come in unconditionally and, and for the people to be helped, saved um, and to be able to resume their lives in some shape or form. We want to thank you, Avril Benoit, for joining us. Uh, this ceasefire we will see goes day by day. Those children in Janine killed yesterday. Um, Avril Benoit is executive director of Doctors Without Borders. Coming up, we'll be speaking with the acclaimed Gazan human rights attorney, Raji Sarani, director of the Palestinian Center for Human Rights. He's going to be joining us from Cairo after his house was bombed in northern Gaza. We will find out about his journey south. Then we'll speak with the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Greg Grandin about the death of Henry Kissinger. Stay with us. The Stranger Cared About Me by Joa Hershafani. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. As we continue our coverage of Gaza, we're joined by Raji Sarani, the award-winning human rights lawyer and director of the Gaza-based Palestinian Center for Human Rights. He's a recipient of the Right Livelihood Award and the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Award. We last spoke with Raji Sarani after Israel bombed his home in Gaza City. He joins us today from Cairo, Egypt. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Raji Sarani. Uh, if you could begin by talking about how you managed to leave Gaza and how you got to Cairo. Well, it was uh, very hard and very hard breaking for me, I mean, to to leave Gaza, I mean, the place I lived all my life, and we took it in it, and uh, uh, that uh, was very hard and very tough, but really, I mean, after I was targeted for the second time, after we talked, uh, I was advised very strongly, I mean, not to be at the place and to leave, I mean, uh, the northern of Gaza, and uh, I left with my family who didn't want to leave me alone. I mean, the, 
So we left together to the south for a few days, and thanks for the help of great friends, I mean, who managed to get me there, because in two previous attempts it was Mission Impossible when tens of people died either on the beach road or at Salah al-Din Street in front of our eyes when the Israelis shot and bombed, I mean, people uh, who were advised to leave to the safe haven in the south, but the, 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 that wasn't, I mean, the case. So I managed, I mean, to leave to the south finally in my third attempt, and uh, uh, from there I managed to move to Egypt. Uh, there was, I mean, quite a lot of friends who wanted, in a way, the voice, I mean, of uh, Gaza, the voice of the voiceless, uh, about the horrendous uh, genocide taking place at that of the board to be reported, I mean, to the outside world. And there is a quite a lot of things, I mean, to do with the ICC, which greatly disappointing us, and there is a quite a lot of work to do with the ICJ, and there is a quite a lot of work to talk, speak to Bauer in, in, in European countries about this new Nakba, which is in a process uh, and Israel creating it and, and to stop their complicity, their absolute political, uh, legal, military support for belligerent criminal occupation who's doing suicide, uh, genocide at the daylight, who's doing ethnic cleansing, war crimes, broadcasted there at live at the real time. But it seems deep in their mind and hearts the colonial uh, racist Western governments uh, don't want to see, don't want to know, and they are insisting, I mean, in supporting blindly uh, the Israeli belligerent occupation and the crimes they are doing in Gaza and the occupied territories at large. Raji, if you could look straight into the camera lens as we speak to you now in Cairo, thank God you're okay. Uh, when we were speaking to you the day after your house was bombed, you described your son uh, moving you and your beloved wife uh, from one room saying, let's go into the hallway, and then the place was destroyed. If you could say in more detail what it was like to make your way north to south, what you saw along the way. We also had reports that those who wanted to return to their homes north, so much of the bombing, it may surprise people, is happening actually in the south where people are directed to go uh, before the ceasefire. Is it true that people were shot trying to go home in the north? The Israeli military had said, don't do this. Well, uh, we have to understand the context. Uh, the, the, the context of what the Israeli really want. Uh, in simple words, Prime Minister Netanyahu, the criminal Netanyahu, said in simple words, Gazans should leave Gaza. He said Gaza should be deserted. And the uh, Minister of Defense Gallant, in a clear, simple way, he said, for Gazans, there will be no food, no electricity, no fuel, and, and 
So, so what does that mean? I mean, if you say Gaza should leave Gaza, to go where to? Uh, it's, it's obvious and clear. If you are starving and cutting electricity, food, medicine, you are bombing shelters, hospitals, ambulances, if you are killing hundreds of entire families, I mean being erased, if you are uh, bombing bakeries, if you are bombing water uh, infrastructure and desalination plants, if you are, uh, you know, bluffing, I mean, the entire streets in, in, in the Gaza, uh, if you are not allowing people even to reach hospital, if you bomb the civil uh, defense system and, and the people who are working on it, what do you want from that? If you make no safe haven in, in, in entire Gaza, what's the purpose of that? Uh, they want to push the north to the south. This is the first stage. And they pushed many as million people, I mean, to the south. Gaza already one of the most dense populated area on earth. And they pushed them while Gaza suffered 17 years of blockade, suffocated the life socially, economically, passed through five wars against them and in the eye of the storm, the civilian and civilian targets. And now you are doing all that. You are killing almost 30,000 people because many, many, many still, I mean, under the rebels, many still under their destroyed houses and civil defense unable to recover. You are talking about thousands of people. You are talking about thousands of people in the streets, in some areas nobody can get to. Uh, the, the rational, the behavior of the Israeli guidelines, the outcome of this, pushing people to the south, and then from the south towards Sinai, that's a new Nakba, as simple as that. They want us out, out of Palestine, out of Gaza, out of the West Bank. But this is, I mean, the ultimate goal, I mean, for the Israeli government. And this coalition of Netanyahu and, and the right wing, the basis of their governmental agreement the coalition agreement to do that. This was said at day one of this uh, war, of this genocide war. Uh, and, and I think yet the Israelis so determined, so willing, and they want to do that. They want to do that. They finished, I mean, the first stage. And now, they want to go to the second stage. And after they finish up with Gaza, it won't be a new brand of apartheid in Jerusalem and West Bank. They will do the same, I mean, there. So what was lack of their plan in 1948 in the Nakba, they want to implement it 
completely now. So Eretz Israel would be clean and they will have the purity of the Jewish state. And by that, they will accomplish, I mean, their mission. This is simple, clear, for any who want to see beyond the details, this is really what Israel wants to do. And, and, and that's why we call it from the second day. This is genocide, this is ethnic cleansing, and these are first-class war crimes. It's against ABC of international law, international material law, and it's against Geneva Convention, it's against Rome Statute, and we see from the world to world support by many European countries doing that willingly and giving full legal, political, and military support for the state of Israel Raji, plus as, as you talk as you talk about international law, um, can you make that comparison between what's hap what happened in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine immediately, um, um, uh, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court um, opening an investigation, especially against children. I think there was something against what happened to the children. 500 children have died in Ukraine over almost two years, up to a thousand dead or maimed. And you compare it to the few weeks of the bombardment of Gaza, five to six thousand children alone dead, over 15,000 people dead. Um, what do you want Kareem Khan to do? And finally, and we just have a few minutes, uh, right now, Blinken just met with Mahmoud Abbas. He just met with Netan. He met, just met with Herzog uh, on his, like, fourth trip to the Middle East. The U.S. pushing hard to give more weapons aid to Israel. Your response to that? What do you want Biden to say to Netanyahu? And how much power does he have? I don't think yet there is decision by U.S. to stop what is going on. They can simply stop all these crimes. We are bombed with F-35, F-16s, uh, the American tanks, the American artillery, the American ammunition. We, we, we are killed with that, with some small amount of European arms. Now, if U.S. want to stop that, they can do that. Uh, and, and they can do that simply, but they are supporting, I mean, really what Israel is doing. And if we are talking about the next stage that... Hello? We can hear you fine. Just if you can look up into the camera. We we'll see you. Uh, we may have just lost Raji Sarani. Raji Sarani is the world-renowned, award-winning human rights attorney, won the RFK, Robert F. Kennedy Award, uh, won the Right Livelihood Award, has lived in Gaza for decades. Um, speaking to us from Cairo, Egypt, he just got out of Gaza. His home was bombed with his wife and his son and him in it. 
Next up, we're going to talk about Henry Kissinger. He's died at the age of 100. We'll speak to the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Greg Grandin, author of Kissinger's Shadow. Stay with us. Right to Live in Peace by Victor Jara, the great Chilean musician who died in the days after the Chilean dictator, Augusto Pinochet, came to power. U.S.-backed, Nixon-backed, Kissinger-backed Pinochet, leading to the death of thousands. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Henry Kissinger has died at the age of 100. To many in the Washington establishment, Kissinger will likely be remembered as one of the most influential diplomats in U.S. history. But around the world, including in Chile, East Timor, Bangladesh and Cambodia, Henry Kissinger is remembered as a war criminal whose actions led to massacres, coups and even genocide. Kissinger, who was born in Germany, served as U.S. Secretary of State under Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford from 1973 to 1977. He also served as National Security Advisor from 1969 to 1975. He's the only U.S. official to ever simultaneously hold both posts. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1973 with his North Vietnam counterpart, Lee Duc Tho. During his time in office, Henry Kissinger oversaw a massive expansion of the war in Vietnam and the secret bombings of Laos and Cambodia, where as many as 150,000 civilians were killed in the U.S. strikes. As Kissinger told the military, quote, anything that flies or anything that moves. In South Asia, Kissinger backed the Pakistani military genocidal war against East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh. In Latin America, declassified documents show how Kissinger secretly intervened across the continent, from Bolivia to Uruguay to Chile and Argentina. In Chile, Kissinger urged President Nixon to take a, quote, harder line against Chile's democratically elected president, Salvador Allende. On September 11, 1973, Allende was overthrown by the U.S.-backed general, Augusto Pinochet. Kissinger once said, quote, I don't see why we need to stand by and watch a country go communist due to the irresponsibility of its own people. In 1975, Henry Kissinger and President Gerald Ford met with the Indonesian dictator General Suharto to give him the go-ahead to invade East Timor, which Indonesia did on December 7, 1975. The Indonesian military killed a third of the Timorese population, one of the worst genocides of the late 20th century. Kissinger also drew up plans to attack Cuba in the mid-70s after Fidel Castro sent Cuban troops to Angola to fight forces linked to apartheid South Africa. 
At home, Kissinger urged President Nixon to go after Pentagon Papers whistleblower Dan Ellsberg, who Kissinger called the most dangerous man in America. The historian Greg Grandin once estimated Kissinger's actions may have led to the deaths of three, maybe four million people. Well, human rights activists have long called for Kissinger to be tried for war crimes. He remained a celebrated figure in Washington and beyond, serving as an advisor to both Republican and Democratic administrations. We turn now to Greg Grandin. He's the Pulitzer Prize-winning author and professor of history at Yale University. His books include Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman. His new piece for the nation is a people's obituary of Henry Kissinger. He also wrote the introduction to the new book just out, Only the Good Die Young, the verdict on Henry Kissinger. Greg, welcome back to Democracy Now! So give us this people's history of Henry Kissinger. As we see in the mainstream media, he's hailed as the man who opened communication with China, uh, led to a detente with Russia. What is your version of events? Well, I think you, you summed up very well the, the, the version of events, the, the, the number of, of war crimes that he was involved in from you know, Kissinger's life is is fascinating because it spans a very consequential bridge in the United, United States history from the collapse of the post-war consensus, you know, that happened with Vietnam. And Kissinger's instrumental in kind of recobbling, recreating a national security state that can deal with dissent, that can deal with polarization, that actually thrived on and secrecy and learning to manipulate the public in order to advance a very aggressive foreign policy. I mean, we can go into the details, but I do want to say that his death has been as instructive as his life. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the obituaries and 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 notes of condolences, uh, they they just it, they just I mean, they just reveal a I think a, a, a moral bankruptcy of the of, of the political establishment, in certainly in the transatlantic world, in, in, in the larger NATO sphere, just an unwillingness or incapacity to to, to comprehend the, the 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 crisis that we're in, and, and and Kissinger's role in that crisis. They're celebratory, they're inane, they're vacuous. Um, and they're really quite remarkable. And, and, and if you think, of, you just think back over the last year, the, the celebrations, the fetting of his 100th anniversary, a uh, hundred, you know, birthday, is living to 100 years. It, it, I, I think it's a, 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 it's a cultural marker of, of just how, how much, how, how bankrupt the political class is in this country is. So his death is almost as instructive as his life. Well, we had you on, uh, Greg, when uh, he turned 100, when Kissinger turned 100. In that interview, you said uh, that the best way to think about Kissinger isn't necessarily as a war criminal. Could you explain why? Yeah, because you know, that is the way. I mean, Christopher Hitchens popularized in thinking about him as a war criminal, and that as a way of elevating Kissinger in some ways as 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 somehow an extraordinary evil and it's a fine line because he did play an outsized role in, in a staggering number of 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 of, of atrocities and and bringing and dealing misery and death across the globe to millions of people but but there's a lot of war criminals 
criminals. I mean, you know, this country is stuck with war criminals. But there's no shortage of war criminals. And 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 thinking about him as a war criminal kind of dumbs us down. It it doesn't allow us to think with Kissinger's use Kissinger's life to think with, to think about how the United States, for example, Kissinger started off as as a Rockefeller Republican, you know, a liberal Republican, uh, an advisor to Nelson Rockefeller, who thought Nixon was far out of, of the mainstream and a dangerous sociopath, I think, as he put it. And yet when Nixon won, and he actually helped him win by by scuttling a, a peace deal with 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 with, um, with North Vietnam, uh, he made a speech with Nixon, and he and, and then he went on, you know, into pub, into public office. And he thought Reagan was too extreme, and and yet he made a speech with Reagan. Then he thought the neocons were too extreme, and he made a speech with the neocons. Then he even made a speech with Donald Trump. He called Donald he, he celebrated Donald Trump almost as a kind of embodiment of his his theory of of of, of a great statesman and being able to, to craft reality as they as they want to through their will so you see kissinger as the country moves right you see kissinger moving with it so just that trajectory is 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 very useful to think with you also if you also think about his secret bombing of cambodia yeah. And then trace out that bombing. It's like a, a bright light, you know, a trace of red running from Cambodia to to the current endless war on terror. What, what was considered illegal? I mean, Kissinger bombed Cambodia in secret because it was illegal to bomb another country that you weren't at war with in the 1960s and 1970s. His his, his um, old colleagues at Harvard who were all cold warriors, none of them peace liberals, marched down to, to to Washington. They didn't even know about the bombing. They went to protest the invasion of Cambodia. And and now, uh, you know, it is just considered a, a, a fact of international law that the United States has the right to bomb countries, that third-party third, third countries that we're not at war with, that gives safe haven to terrorists. It's just considered... It's just considered commonplace. So you can see this evolution and drift towards endless war through Kissinger's life. You could also, Kissinger's also, Kissinger's life is also useful to think about how, you know, the, as a public official, first second, national security advisor and then secretary of state to Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, Kissinger um, created much of the chaos that would later um, necessitate and require a transition to what we call neoliberalism. But then out of office, at the head, at, as the head of Kissinger Associates, Kissinger helped broker that transition to neoliberalism, the privatization of much of the world, of Latin America, of Eastern Europe, of Russia. So you see that, you know, you know that, that transition from from you know a public public uh, politic politician or public policymaker, and then going on to to uh, to making untold wealth uh, as as a private citizen in 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 this transition. So you you, you know there's a, there's many ways in which Kissinger's life kind of maps the trajectory of 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 the United States. You know they celebrated him at the New York Public Library as if he was the American century incarnate. And, it, and in many ways, he was. You know, he was. He really, he really 
his career really does map nicely onto onto the the the, the, the trajectory of the United States and the, and the and the evolution of the national security state and its foreign policy and you know and and, and the broken world that we're all trying to live in as as your last two segments Greg, uh, I- uh, showed some. I want to go to Henry Kissinger in his own words. He's speaking in 2016 when he defended the secret bombing of Cambodia. Nixon uh, ordered an attack on the base areas within five miles of the Vietnamese border that were essentially unpopulated. So when the phrase carpet bombing is used, uh, it is... I think in, in the size of the attacks, probably much less than what the Obama administration has done in similar base areas in Pakistan, uh, which I think is justified. And therefore, I believe that what was done in Cambodia was justified. So that was Henry Kissinger in 2016. He was um, speaking at the LBJ Library. The late celebrity chef, Anthony Bourdain, once said, once you've been to Cambodia, you'll never stop wanting to beat Henry Kissinger to death with your bare hands. You'll never again be able to open a newspaper and read about that treacherous, prevaricating, murderous scumbag sitting down for a nice chat with Charlie Rose or attending some black tie affair for a new glossy magazine without choking. Witness what Henry did in Cambodia, the fruits of his genius for statesmanship, and you'll never understand why he's not sitting in the dock at The Hague next to Milosevic. Um, If you can just respond uh, to that and— Yeah, well, that quote— it contains more moral and intellectual intelli- acuity and intelligence than the entire uh, political establishment, both liberal and both Democrat and Republican. It, 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 it's a, it's a morally correct, it's intellectually correct, and you know it, it's 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 more accurate than 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 most diplomatic historians who, who trade on on making Kissinger more uh, ethical morally complicated than he was in terms of Kissinger's quote himself about Cambodia there he's there he's playing a little bit of a game so he's lying I mean he carpet bombed Cambodia he, 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 the United States massively bombed Cambodia and brought to power within the Khmer Rouge the most extreme um, uh, clique led by Pol Pot you know when you massively bomb a country and you destroy all opposition you tend to bring to power the, the extremists. And that's exactly why Kissinger is responsible to a large degree for the for the genocide that happened later on under Pol Pot. The, the bombing brought to power Pol Pot within the Khmer Rouge, which previously was a larger, broader coalition. But Kissinger isn't wrong when he links it to Obama's bombing of Pakistan. That was the point I was trying to make earlier. You know, Kissinger just had to do it illegally back uh, covertly back then because it was illegal it was it was against international law to bomb third countries you know in order to advance your war aims in another country but now it's accepted as commonplace and it is true he's not wrong when he cites obama's drone program and what obama uh and and, and, and you know uh, 
the, you know, the, the continuation of the logic of the war on terror that started under George W. Bush. He's not wrong about that. And that's and that's the line that that's one of the lines that you can trace from from Vietnam and Cambodia and South Asia to today's uh, catastrophe that we're living in. Greg Grandin, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Pulitzer Prize winning author and professor of history at Yale University. He's author of Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman. We'll link to your article on the nation, a people's obituary of Henry Kissinger. Happy belated birthday to Dina Guzder. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.